0: The reason that you got good at that conversation, what we did is we built muscle memory. Why? Because in the same reason why I picked your favorite sports team right now in your brain, pick the most incredible player that you can think of, they practice because in the heat of the moment, in the heat of that battle, whatever that sport is, they're relying upon muscle memory in the same way that you're relying on muscle memory to be able to pivot that angry-ish person back to productive. Those techniques are teachable, but they have to be practiced.
2: This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about tough skills for product managers. So that's all about emotional intelligence, how do you deal with stakeholders, how to communicate with the rest of the team, and some really great facilitation techniques so that you can get the work done, not just do the work. So I'm joined by Glenn Stoffel and Karen Fried, who are the co-founders of Camp 4. Welcome. Thanks, Melissa. It's great to have you guys here. Can you tell us a little bit about Camp 4 and how you got into this world of teaching about tough skills and what are tough skills?
0: Sure. Thanks, Melissa. So Karen and I were both executives at a company called Blue Wolf. We grew up in the Salesforce.com consulting ecosystem, and we built a business there that we ultimately sold to IBM. And through that business, we did a lot of digital transformation. And through that business, we had to skill a lot of people on becoming consultants to be able to facilitate digital transformation. And tough skills was what we felt was necessary once we taught people salesforce.com as a platform, once we taught people how they're going to run a project, we realized that what really differentiated them was how they operated when they got in the room. The skills that they were able to put forward, they're interacting with stakeholders when they're trying to gain consensus, when they're trying to influence folks to get things done.
2: Yeah. And those are so critical for product managers, too. So we were talking a little bit about when before we jumped on here and I was telling you how some of the biggest questions that I get from people are like, you know, my my executives don't just don't get it. How do I convince them that this is the way to go for product management? Or, you know, sales is coming over and telling me that I just have to build these things. Like, how do I tell them no that I control all of this? So, all of these kind of relate back to the tough skills in product management. And when we talk about skills in product management over the last, why I'm really fascinated about this is over the last decade, we've gotten really good at doing some of the practical product management skills. Like, we've gotten great at writing out stories, uh, doing prototypes, that experimentation about data analysis, about all those individual hard skills. But where I see people really struggle now is that other side, um, which sometimes we call soft skills, but you guys are calling them tough skills. And I was so excited to talk to you because I feel like there are a lot of product managers out there, a lot of product leaders who really need to learn how to develop these things to be able to get their work done across the aisle in an organization. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what are tough skills? If you had to you know, list them out or talk about what makes something a tough skill, what does that look like?
1: You know, it's so interesting because we're talking about product, mar- um, product management. And we were talking about consulting, and I think at the root of it all is the same thing. As technology keeps stepping it up and getting it easier, it's clicks, not code. There's better platforms available to make us quicker, faster, maybe more efficient or effective, but not necessarily always more efficient. So there's a gap, and that's the human side. Wherever technology process and people come in place, as soon as you put that, the people I believe tough skills need to show up, right? In order to help people align, agree, collaborate, become critical thinkers, be empathetic for the end result, ask great questions, be an active listener, facilitate change in an organization. Those are the things that only at the speed that a human is willing to engage in is the speed in which you're going to be successful build the best product and don't have change management, it'll be shelved. Not agreeing on the roadmap, no one's going to move forward. Like these are all so critical, underlying everybody's success as people elevate and move forward in their career. As you mentioned, their technical opportunities to code, to design, those are all leaving. As they're elevating, these tough skills are really what's going to make the difference. Eventually into leadership, eventually into somebody as a thought leader and writing and talking about why an organization should go through a transformation or adopt a change or produce a product. All of those are really tough skills and nobody is really looking at them, realizing that those are the critical things for success here.
2: Yeah. All those things that you mentioned are things that I think are critical for product managers to learn, but I see them become even more important right, as we get into these leadership positions like we were talking about. And where I like train a lot of chief product officers, I hire a lot of chief product officers. Sometimes I get hired in to replace (laughs) chief product officers or VPs of product. And to me, those tough skills are almost the thing that makes or breaks whether they're successful or not. It's their ability to do that facilitation across the aisle to to get those things done. So if you're a product manager, let's say, and you really want to be a leader, you want to be a chief product officer one day or any kind of leader and you want to develop your tough skills, I find that some people don't even know how to start, right? Like, like, how do you actually assess your skills and figure out where do I need help? Like, is there a framework to this? Is there a way to be like, here's the, the, you know, core requirements of tough skills and how I can actually see if I'm good at them or not?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think let's go to that word you use facilitation, because I think within there is a really interesting place to explore and you know as you're growing in you know from from product manager towards a, towards a CPO say you know if i were to advise companies around the planet the one skill they're probably not investing in that they should be it's facilitation and oftentimes you know strong product people have great visions really strong opinions they can see where the dots connect they can have a great vision for how that customer experience is going to work, how that employee experience is going to work. But you can get caught in a trap of control versus collaboration. Take my vision. And the the higher I get up, oh, well, they're just going to take my vision because now I'm at the executive table. And I would say nothing could be further from the truth. It's actually your skills of collaboration that become even more important for you to get your ideas across and for your ideas to take on. The, the tenor and the profile of your customers, your employees, and the rest of the executive team, so that it's our idea, and that requires facilitation. And maybe um, Karen, if you want to give some of the the foundational skills that sit within there, because there, there's a motion of facilitation that is the magic. Like when you run in and do a discovery session or a stakeholder alignment, right? That is a beautiful session. That is a facilitated session. But there's some foundational skills that are building blocks to that. That maybe. know, we can start to unpack as a foundation.
1: Yeah. So also something really interesting that people don't always differentiate between is presentation and facilitation. So I like to always start at that point. If I'm presenting to you, I'm the subject matter expert and I'm speaking 80% of the time and I leave 10 to 15 minutes at the end for questions. And of course, I'm going to provide these answers. I'm the subject matter expert. When I'm facilitating, 80% of the time I'm collecting information from others and only 20% of the time am I really just setting context and creating space for collaboration to happen. So in that 80% of the time, what am I supposed to do as a facilitator? I have some serious ground rules. Number one, I have to set the tone. I have to remain neutral. I have to remind everybody what the goal is of this. I have to check as many egos at the door or manage the group dynamics. That's pulling some people forward and asking them questions. That's pushing some people back, continually reminding people of what our agenda is and the expectations and the outcomes that we're all collectively working towards. I have to guide and control the conversation, but not stifle it in any way. So these are pretty dynamic personalities that you're going to want to be inclusive of. And there's some very easy techniques. And I say that in the way, Uh, one of the best ways to hear everyone's voice is give everyone a a magic marker and a post-it. And everyone has the same amount of post-its. All of a sudden, we've delineated and, and flattened hierarchies pretty quickly. It's also really important to remain neutral. I can't really think that Melissa's idea was the best idea. And then Glenn's, "Mm -mm, so-so. I didn't create a neutral zone. Everyone has their opportunity. There'll be other facilitation techniques that we can use in which maybe we'll vote or prioritize those ideas. But as the facilitator, I can't play favorites. A neutral and objective opinion is where I need to go. So actually, people find it. It's easier for me to facilitate something I know nothing about. I'm just... Open eyed and curious. The toughest thing is as you're growing in your career and you become a, the CPO, you know a lot about it and you have strong opinions. And so you have to check yourself and hold that out so that you've created this space where other people can have the opportunity to share ideas and gain alignment. So another thing that a facilitator does in that 20% that they're allowed to speak is ask really good questions. The power of a question, not leading. An open one, you set it up with enough context and then you let it roll. So, facilitation really is a series of activities led by great questions.
2: So, to dive into that a little bit more, too, where I see people struggle is sometimes they end up in facilitation mode and then they never come back to having their own opinion. So, how do you balance, right? Like, if you're, let's take this for example, like you're the chief product officer, you don't even have to be that high, like you're a product manager. And I've seen a lot of product managers do this, where we tell product managers over and over again that they're facilitators. I tell them this a lot. So they go out, they go talk to sales, they talk to all these people, they gather all their opinions, they gather all their ideas. And then what they do is they end up coming back and sometimes not making decisions about what those ideas are, right? Or learning how to sift through the ideas that are out of context or not relevant, right? To come back to what the objective is and to focus. So how do you advise people on understanding when they're facilitating versus when they're leading versus when they have to do decisions? Like in what context should you be facilitating? And then when do you come back and say, here's how I put my own expertise on it or here's what I do afterwards?
0: Yeah, I think part of what you're trying to get the organization around is not agreeing on the end solution, but if they can agree on the rules of engagement of how we're going to get there, and if we can get them aligned around the criteria that we're all going to use to make decisions together, that's the magic of how to make sure it's done in their language and you're pulling them into it. So for example, one of the facilitation techniques techniques we use. And I think I heard you talk about this in your 100th episode, when you were talking about stakeholder alignment, you you talked about acquisition, expansion, retention, sort of a classic, like, where are we going to put the focus on on the business? And therefore, that might be determinant of how we're going to drive the product and and the requirements. That frame is a really powerful frame. And that's a technique that we use. And it's called the acre model acquisition, expansion, retention, and cost savings. And when we Facilitate that session. We initially do it in a very open format, very brainstorming. Okay. What does everybody think the most important thing is that we should do to acquire customers, grow customers, expand customers, save money across all of those, those facets? And what you expect in the facilitation technique is a bunch of post notes and a lot of brainstorming and everybody's ideas get out on the table. Then what you do is you introduce a framework for making sure that you could trade upon those as a currency. That an idea can be compared against another idea for purposes ultimately of prioritization. So what you do in the facilitation techniques, you start pulling off a post-it note and you go, okay, so who wrote this one? And they'll say, oh, well, I think, uh, we should, you know, do nothing but add a whole new product set, you know, to, to our existing, to our existing product set. Just, ex- just extend. And somebody else says, I think we should go into new markets. Okay. Two different ideas. How do I compare those two ideas? One person started to say, you, then you start asking, well, Where is, let's say cross sell is the thing that somebody's promoting. Where are you going to do cross sell? Who are you going to enable cross sell? You know, are you going to do that with your inside salespeople, your outside salespeople, your call center? Your contact center might not even be trained to know how to spell cross sell. Can they really do it? So all of a sudden you've got, you need to talk about the who. And if we did that, how much is it worth to us to do it? What's the business impact? And so what you're doing is you're starting to shine light on the frame and then we get them to rewrite them. And each one of these things has to have a who it's for, the business impact, how it's aligned with the strategy. And again, if it's a social organization, it could be how it's aligned with their social mission. But again, you can you elicit the frame. That frame is the magic that you hang everything off of because then now they have a currency with which to, to trade. And so your own opinion in there. Okay. You know, you could certainly have your, your own post-it notes, but really what's going to come out of that is the organization's opinion and a common way that they can decide upon priorities. That's a maybe a long way of sort of getting around to your question, but let's see what, what it leads you to think about that we might have missed there.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. So what I'm hearing too is in order to go into those meetings though, where you're facilitating, you need to have an agreed upon prioritization framework. You need to have, which we talk about a lot in product management, and there's a ton of different ones. I particularly like things like um, cost of delay. That's a great one that I keep recommending to people. But then we also need to have good data that says, like, we have something to show how we're going to rank these things based on our opinions. And we need the right people in the room to do that. And then once we have those requirements, then we're able to go facilitate, hear everybody's opinions, and then use it to get to common ground.
0: And that is prioritization. So now that I've got these tradable items, now I can shape my vision, product manager. And I can say... Based on the facilitations we did, all the interviews we did now, because you have the organization, you know, sort of around it, you have their language, you have it tied to the business outcomes, you have it tied to the strategy of the company, customer employee experience. Now, I think the product manager and CBO can can shape it, can have their opinion. So when they present back to the organization, hey, this is what we all got together and discussed. This seems to be our, our priorities as a team, aligned with our strategy, aligned with our employee experience, our customer experience. And yeah, they're definitely gonna bring their own ideas to that. And they probably knew some of what was gonna happen as a result. You know, it's it's not it's not all gonna be a surprise. It doesn't all come out in the room. Some of it some of it's already you already have a shape, a reasonable shape. What you've done is is really solidified that shape with the voice of everybody else in it. That's the line of how to get your own, I guess, ideas in there, you know, that that you were asking at the beginning of that that segment.
2: Facilitation is a skill I see as a fundamental difference between good and great product managers. Yet, it's often overlooked. Great product managers focus on guiding clear conversations and steering stakeholders to the best outcomes. You can develop these facilitation superpowers in Voltage Control's facilitation certification program. Ready to unlock your greatness? Apply today at voltagecontrol.com slash product. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code thinking to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. Yeah. So one thing that I've seen happen, and I've heard this from other people too, <laughs> in these situations, is that we might have somebody who's very wedded to their idea, and they're trying to put it into the framework, but they don't like the framework, and they might try to blow up the whole framework because it doesn't match their idea. Um, I'm sure everybody has worked with some kind of stakeholder who's just really gunning for their thing. What do you do in those situations where you've got somebody who's a little hostile and not working towards the meeting or towards the goal? of these companies and instead like working more towards their own goal right and not seeing the overall picture
1: as a product owner you you probably do know some of the dynamics in the company you know where that that pitfall might be sitting you know inside of and so i as a facilitator by remaining neutral you know it's really that's not the time to if it's happening live and in person in front of a lot of people, you remain neutral, The that behavior will be seen by many people as disruptive. And I think if you know that going in, taking time to build a bridge between you and that person, showing them what it is, it's going to take some extra time. Building a bridge always does. Perhaps even helping them write it, you know, so that it becomes, that's just navigating a personality an objection but if the process is fair that we're working them through I think again that's their level of understanding and we always have to deal with everybody's personalities so I would just try to catch it live and in person you know it's almost like Glenn and I have had this like almost it's it's an attack and you you're almost frozen
2: exactly and it's in I think that's what I hear from people, I've I've witnessed it myself. Like I've been in a room of executives just screaming at each other, right? Where it gets super hostile and you know this one person is gonna blow it all up and like stir the pot going in there, but they're probably in a leadership position. They're probably have been allowed to get away with those types of things. So now you are trying to figure out how do you get your work done when you've got this kind of antagonistic character over here? So you mentioned like building a bridge, which I totally agree with. What are the first steps to building a bridge with somebody like that? And in some of these situations, maybe they were like hostile to you at the beginning. I see a lot of this in product management more because it's that giving up control. So for example, this happens a lot with sales leaders. You know, as soon as you bring in a head of product, they're like, well, we were calling all the shots and now we're not. And they get a little upset. They get, you know, their autonomy for dictating the product roadmap was taken away. Their control was taken away. They start to be a little hostile. Some people are not, but like this, this does happen pretty frequently. Or in large transformations in organizations as well, you know, the leaders are being told, like, you don't have software decision rights anymore, or the way we're going to change some stuff. So you're probably not going to have the same scope that you had before. How do you work with those people, right? Like, what's the first step to really taking a personality like that who comes off pretty hostile to you, angry in the meetings, doesn't want to work with you, uncollaborative, and trying to build a bridge with them?
1: You pointed out something that's so powerful before we get to how to deal with that individual is you understand you just had so much empathy for that sales leader and you actually know we are going to find these people along our journey. Don't be surprised while we're going down this path that there's going to be an angry bear. Okay. So you actually just educated people knowing, look for this, look for this in every one of your meetings and do whatever you can to prevent it right? So carry the whistle, do whatever. But more importantly, you were so empathetic about that. This person is used to X, Y, and Z, and now there's a change. What do you want to do about it? And I think even when attacked in a meeting, you would tip your head and you would feel something for them because you understand where they're coming from. You don't agree with their behavior, but you do understand where they're coming from. And that change is difficult that this is scary. I wouldn't necessarily have a therapy session with them right then and there. But when you're coming from an empathetic place, your reaction and your mode, I think, changes a lot. I'll pass it to Glenn. Let him give you. Yeah, more perspective.
0: I, I, would have two, I would have two lenses of this that are going to take that is like um, the top game and the immediate like in-your-face game. Let, let's deal with the in-your-face game really quickly because what we were talking about is getting emotionally hijacked in a meeting. We've all felt it. Strong personality type, strong opinion, probably very senior leader, just barreling through something. And by the way, they could be angry about something and have every right to be. So you, we can't just dismiss it offhand that they're not right, even though they might be being a jerk or being a little angry or, or taking out in a different way. Like they also could be right about the opinion that like, it could be sound strategy, you know, so we have to be able to, we have to be able to parse that apart. Melissa, I, I bet in your career, you got very good at the following thing. Angry stakeholder called you up. And by the end of that conversation, you had pivoted that back to productive. Yes or no?
2: Yeah. <laughs> that okay. was learned, you know, on the job too, right?
0: Many of us learned that the hard way.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's a big thing that I, I try to tell people is like, I didn't start off knowing this. Like I actually used to be a very antagonistic person when I was like uh, younger in my career, right? Like early days in my career, I thought I was right and everybody was wrong. And I thought people were like generally stupid. Like that was my attitude, at least, even if I didn't firmly believe that in my soul, but I came off that way. And I learned that that's not the way that you get things done. And I have a lot of empathy you know, having gone through a lot of change myself and working with organizations doing like these large transformations like you guys have been doing too. Like I see so many people, like imagine, you know, I try to say it. It's like, but imagine you've been working somewhere for 40 years. And one day somebody comes in and says, hey, we're going to do a digital transformation. And that job that you got really good at for 40 years and like you might be close to retirement, that job's different now. And you have to go back to the drawing board and learn an entire new skill set really like, well, I put in my forty years. I've got five years to retirement. Like, why would I? Why would I want to go back and learn how to be a product manager? Right. So I like work with people like that every day, and I learned that it's not just from you know telling them you have to do it this way and listen to me that you get things done. It's by really empathizing with them and finding common ground and understanding where they're coming from. Like I would be very upset if somebody came in and blew up my job at that point. I would be like, come on, I, I'm almost done here. Like I got to go. Enjoy my retirement soon. Why do I have to like kill myself for the next five years? So I think there's, yeah, I think that lack of empathy happens a lot. But I do think learning empathy, you know, uh, people ask me, they're like, how do I learn how to empathize? And I think that's one of the biggest things product managers, we say product managers need to do, right? We say empathize with your customers. And I don't see people empathizing with their executives or empathizing with their stakeholders or empathizing with the change management that's happening and how those people feel about it. But then I also hear people who are like, Oh, should we, should we have to? And it's like, yeah, if you, if you want to get things done, you kind of, you kind of do.
0: <laughs> and in those moments, right. In that heated moment, like let's, let's put a pinpoint on that where, where the person's going to get emotionally hijacked, right. Like, and be on their heels. When all they're there to do is really solve a problem and, they, and, and something they believe in, which is a way to move the company forward with, you know, with, with product management process and, you know, a, a discipline instead of habits. Yeah, you know, we can, you know, that the reason that you got good at that conversation and I got good at that conversation the hard way over time, what we did is we built muscle memory. But there's why? Because in like in the same reason why I pick your favorite sports team right now in your brain, pick the most incredible player that you can think of and then ask yourself a question. Why? do they still practice? They practice because in the heat of the moment, in the heat of that battle, whatever that sport is, they're relying upon muscle memory in the same way that you're relying on muscle memory to be able to pivot that angry ish person back to productive. Those techniques are teachable, but they have to be practiced. You know, professional teams practice. And well, actually I should say many professionals don't practice (laughs) in our space, but they should, they could. And those are teachable techniques. They don't all need to be learned the way that you and I might've learned them and Kara might've learned them, you know, with a hard way over a lot of conversations.
1: I'll add to that, that a lot of times as people are moving up in their career, you know, they, they have that technical capability and just when they really need it, they think they're going to dive into these skills and pick them up. But these skills are actually developed. You can't just apply them as needed, right? There's, there are frameworks, there's muscle memory, as Glenn was mentioning, it takes practice. And so people get out of equilibrium, you know, and they go back to what they're accustomed to doing and want to do, because this is an unknown. And these are skills and muscles I haven't used yet. So if you're already there, you're behind, like you start at the foundation level and a critical conversation or identifying themes or starting to build up empathy starts now just with awareness and then the desire to learn more about it and then the ability to do it and then gets reinforced. So there's like a lot, there's a lot of things that people could be doing. And Melissa, you mentioned this and I had a critical point in my career. I was always client facing, running Uh, projects, doing digital transformations. I loved it. I loved working with my clients. And at a particular point in my career, I was asked to come in-house. I was like, who's going to be my client? And I realized my executives are my client. My employees are my client. I had the best client. I loved their culture and I got paid by them. Like having an internal client is someone you would cherish and they're going to be there for the long run. So yeah, that's really worth being empathetic to those are your partners. Those are the ways that this company is going to move the needle in the right direction. They're worth the
2: investment and in. clients
1: may come and go, but your team is not.
2: That's a really great analogy for that too. So if you want to practice these types of things, like you, you want to practice empathizing with people, understanding where they're coming from. Let's say you're early in your career and you're like, I just heard Karen, I'm developing this because I really want to be a VP of product one day. What are the steps you could do you know to get started like how should you be thinking about this on like a weekly basis a monthly basis to kind of hone your skills and reflect and see if you're actually progressing and getting better and how do you how do you know if you're getting better
0: yeah we deliver public courses every tuesday there's pl- but there's plenty you know or there's plenty of other people who also do that i would say find a place where you can learn the techniques and practice them but then it becomes really important how do they stick because that's that's really what's what's foundational in in, in what you're asking, right? Is what, what are the habits, right, that they can stick. And a lot of times that comes down to a to a couple pieces. One is if if those types of skills are a priority in the organization and they're identified as such, then how do they show up? How do they show up in a project retrospective? How do they show up in a six-month or biannual employee review, right? Those those skills need they need to be spoken about. And how do they show up in a mentorship? capacity. If you happen to have that, right? It's about giving, giving those skills voice within those fixtures, those ceremonies within the organization is a big piece of it. And then very personally, it's like, you know, you need to talk about it with the people that you trust and tell them, Hey, I'm working on this. When we get out of this next meeting, could you give me feedback? Like, you know, and make sure that that, and again, if that's a cultural tenant already, that feedback is a gift and that's built into the culture. Great. You're just, you're just playing into something that's already there. If it's not, find your small set of people, (laughs) let them on the inside and tell them you're working on these things. Uh, But it has to find voice after they they learn it and they practice it to make it really stick.
1: I would add to that, this journey, this other half of the equation that we're talking about really does look a lot like emotional intelligence. So here's a couple of things that you can check. Are you getting triggered? Are you blaming others? Do you feel like you don't have control because it's, it's, you know, you're pointing fingers at different parts of the organization? If they would just, they should. By the way, if the word should is showing up, it's an indicator that we need to become more flexible. Are you annoyed? Do you, do you have the feeling that you, you're always right and everyone else is wrong? And above all other costs, that's what we're going to go with. I just want to be right versus get the results. We have to put that down in order for the company to get what they want. And can you start looking at the bigger picture? This is not about feature and functionalities inside of the product. It's about the company moving in this, big, this bigger direction and meeting its business objectives. If you can start thinking that way and then branch out, you know, read an emotional intelligence book, take a test, find out where you are on a scale from one to 10. We teach um, this really good framework where we check in, one being an absolute terrible day, Melissa, we are not out of bed, we're in the fetal position. 10 being the best day, we're probably not working. It's like, we are in flow. This is the best day ever. And we're toggling somewhere between that. And before I go into a major meeting, I check my number. I have 15 minutes before I'm going to meet with Melissa. This is me becoming self-aware. How can I be my best self? How do I know I can facilitate? I have to be above a five. If I'm not, go for a walk, go drink some water. Don't be hangry. These These all sound like just such personal things. They, they tap into the best possible version of yourself. And that's the type of skill. These skills are tough. No one's playing that game that Glenn's been practicing every day unless you're going to be in peak performance. So I think this level of awareness, see how many times you're triggered, see how important it is to be right. Those are going to be things that are going to help you at least identify that you might want to make the change because it, it really this change is it's about them.
2: Yeah. I love that framework to really think about that, and I do think if you sit there and reflect, and especially when the types of questions that I get from product managers, like, "Oh, my salesperson, you know, just wants me to do the roadmap," I can tell that they were triggered because they wrote to me. <laughs> so it's probably a good like awareness. If you are writing to me and complaining about somebody, it's probably that you're triggered. But some of them do have good reasons to be triggered. But um, <laughs> some of it, some of it is in a dysfunctional workplace. But if you are working in a dysfunctional workplace, right? It sounds like the first step is to kind of empathize with the people around you and try to figure out where they're coming from to create it there. And then I always advise people though if if change isn't really going to happen or you tried it and you did approach it from all these standpoints we're talking about, sometimes it's best to leave and go find another place where you can actually work. So where I don't think anybody's saying here like beat your head against the wall trying to change everything forever, but if you practice these types of things with the facilitation techniques, the empathy, the emotional intelligence, it can help with a lot of these conflicts that people are actually. Have.
0: It might, it might also help you be clear that place isn't for you. And that's okay, brother. That's, that's awesome. That type of clarity, when you rock that into your next interview and you say, I'm looking for this, this, and this skills wise, job wise, but also this is what I need culturally. This is the type of people I want to roll with. Bring that clarity in an interview. And, you know, at least that's the way I always hired. I hired for you know, attitude, aptitude, you know, culture fit. We'll teach you the rest of the stuff.
2: Yeah. That's great. So, what other? So, we talked about facilitation. We talked about emotional intelligence. Are there any other tough skills that we did not touch on today?
0: I would just say, like, I want to go back to that. You know, we talked about that frontline emotional hijacking, but but that was off of off of your question about how do I get people aligned. So, I just don't want to treat that front end issue. I do want to get around and above and and to the side of that of that person to use the the broader corporate charter to get them in line you know and so to me there's there's facilitation techniques that what i would say if you're if you're moving on that progression as you said in the, in the 100th episode the third thing that that sort of progression from product manager to cpo and i'm going to have executive presence the thing sure. that i would be looking for and to be asking is what is the strategy of the company can they articulate it in 35 words or less because uh there's there's a framework sitting there about what the strategy of the company is and if everybody agrees that we're going to be you know A $200 million company by 2018 by offering this to this, to these customers organized this way, you know, with this unique process. If everybody knows what that is and everybody's agreed to that, every time that you're talking about, you know, where the product management function fits into that, you're pointing back to the corporate charter. You're pointing back to a really clear strategy statement that the executive team came up with together. You know, having somebody facilitate that for you. You know, again, you can, if you're the CPO, you could, you could do it if you're a gifted facilitator. That's where I try to take the charter from the top, because then by the time that cascades down to that meeting, you already have the executive alignment around where we're trying to go as a business. Now you're trying to answer the question, what do we think the most important things we could be doing from a product point of view in order to achieve that? And that might help, you know, put, put that person in line. So that's just a, a some thinking around the, the, particularly up at this chief product officer level. And how their executive engagement could be enhanced, uh, I would I would make sure that there's a really tight strategy that's written and everybody knows where it is and agrees to it.
2: And there's usually not, um, <laughs> which is a lot of a lot of the work that I do. But yeah, it's that's a really good point. You know, without a common. North Star, without that vision, without that strategy, you can't facilitate anything. You're just going to be spinning your wheels because you have no uh, nowhere to converge to, no common context about what you're going into. So a lot of work has to happen before you just jump into the room. I like that. The Also, the other thing that you mentioned too that I wanted to dive into a little bit was you mentioned the word executive presence. And we do see that come up a lot for, you know, how people evaluate leaders, how they're looking at any, anybody in the organization really as a product manager, there is some kind of level of executive presence that they're looking for from someone. What does that mean? Like what is executive presence and how do you hone it?
1: Some of the things, and again, it's a skill that gets developed over time. I don't think all of a sudden you you flip a switch and you become an executive. So there's a level of confidence and That level of confidence is to be able to articulate and clearly define what it is that you're speaking about. I think once you want to understand and unpack that, like what does confidence look like and sound like, some of the simplest things, but it's running effective meetings. It's having a purpose, it's driving to an outcome. And at the higher level, those meetings are more and more expensive. They shouldn't be just run like the wild, wild west. I know that people's time is important and I'm going to drive to this outcome. I have a specific agenda. The prep work, when when Glenn says the word, we rock into a meeting, it doesn't mean we just showed up. Like there was equal amount of time to prepare for that meeting. If you're going to facilitate it or if you're going to run it effectively, understanding how to flex to people's communication style so that your message lands more neutral, it's not offensive or aggravating in any way. All of these skills, Melissa, that we were mentioning before about being empathetic, that is also a leader and clear communication.
2: Great. I think that's very nice, concise little list that you can actually look at there. And like I said, I do think product managers, even from your earliest days, you know, your junior product manager, you're getting in there. That's something that you could start honing because you do have to get up there and present to people. You do have to manage those rooms. You do have to bring all these stakeholders together. So the more you start honing your executive presence now, the longer it will go for you as you try climbing that career ladder too. So for those of the uh, people listening and they say, Hey, I've got a team and I want to teach them some of these skills, or um, I'm an individual product manager. I want to hone my you know, emotional intelligence or learn some tough skills. What can they do to learn more about camp four or reach out to you? What kind of, uh, what kind of work do you do with companies and individuals?
0: Yeah. So broadly around tough skills. I mean, the first thing I would suggest is we do tough skills Tuesdays and we've got four great modules. Nice, tight video goes out ahead of time. So people could just learn the concepts because the key piece, as I said earlier is practice creating a safe place. Once you learn those concepts, just practice them try them out, try asking great questions, try telling a great story, try flexing to that challenging communication style person that was trying to emotionally hijack you, try it in a safe environment. So our Tough Skills Tuesdays is a great place, you know, to start that. But we'll also put these frameworks and these trainings into broader, you know, talent engines for organizations who are trying to do these things consistently, who want to set up their onboarding, who want to set up their technical training, or again, or these, uh, client-facing consulting trainings.
2: Great. Well, I hope if you've been listening to this and you are a leader looking for maybe some different training through your community of practice for product management or just to bring in somebody to help your team, you do reach out to Glenn and Karen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We will link to everything that they mentioned in our show notes. If you go to productslabs.com or the productthinkingpodcast.com you can find it. Thank you again, Glenn and Karen, for being here. And thank you for listening to the Product Thinking Podcast.